Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in this episode we are joined by the crime and fantasy author behind the best-selling Detective Inspector McLean series. He's James Oswald. James, welcome. Hello, it's really nice to be here. It's great to have you here. And your objects, of course. James has brought along five objects that have shaped his writing. So, James, you have published six Inspector McLean books so far, the most recent being The Damage Done, which came out at the start of this year. And the next instalment in the series, Written in Bones, is set for release in the new year. So why crime, James? Why were you drawn to crime? Because I know you sort of dabbled in fantasy before. Well, actually, fantasy is where I started and Mm. comics is where I started. And I only started writing crime fiction quite recently, well, in the last 10 years or so. And it all comes down to another crime fiction author, Stuart McBride, ah. um, immortalised in the pages of Detective Sergeant Stuart McBride. Stuart and I first met in Aberdeen in the early 90s. Um, we both have a love of comics. And I was trying to write comics, and he's a very talented artist, and he was trying to draw comics. So mm. a mutual friend introduced us. We got on really, really well. And our comics endeavours didn't get very far. But fast forward a few years, I was writing fantasy novels. He'd written some fantasy and some science fiction and had finally got a publishing deal from HarperCollins for his first Inspector Logan McRae book. And he phoned me up when he got the deal. He was very excited. And in the course of the conversation, he said, you know, stop writing this dragon fantasy <laughs> nonsense. Crime fiction's where it's at. Yeah. So that's why I started writing crime fiction. So The Damage Done is the sixth book in the series and it centres around the seedy underworld of Edinburgh High Society. After a police raid on a brothel goes wrong, Tony McLean discovers a link to a long-buried case from his early days on the beat. Let's hear the opening of the audiobook of The Damage Done, read by Ian Hanmore. Silence fills the old house like a pool of stagnant water. Sunlight filtering in through the thick ivy clogging the fly-spotted windows picks out motes as they dance and spin the heat. There is a stillness to the air, as if nothing has disturbed this place in decades. Only ghosts walk these abandoned rooms. Only spirits haunt the long, cobwebbed corridors. Even the rats avoid it, and the only bird anywhere near lies dead in the hallway, trapped and starved and rotted to feather and bone. She treads lightly on the wooden stair, footsteps leaving imprints in the dust. Light fingers caress the banisters as she descends from high above. If she notices the dereliction around her, she doesn't show it, stepping across the litter-strewn hallway without a care. She walks through a library filled with rotting bookshelves, their books collapsed into piles of decaying paper and leather on the floor, broken furniture worn down by time more than use. The fireplace in the drawing room is filled with ash and twigs, a small sapling growing where its parent was long ago put to the fire. The dining room is laid out for a meal, the food on the plates, half-eaten and now turned to dirt. A fern unfurls in the corner where water has leaked in through a broken window. Its primeval fronds are delicate and pale, a home for insects and spiders. She stops for a moment, taking one leaf lightly between finger and thumb, like a seamstress eyeing up a piece of fine cloth. I heard a noise. Did something disturb you? She turned slowly, recognising the voice of her brother. I woke up. 
I was asleep for so long. She stretches like a cat, long arms reaching for the cracked, damp-spotted ceiling. The bones in her back and neck click and pop as if she has not moved in a very long time. She yawns wide, revealing pure white teeth in a mouth as black as the night. We are needed in the city. Such an intriguing opening. Because I was like, I'm reading a crime thriller, but who are these people in Lady Havisham's mansion? I mean, it's absolutely it's very, very gripping. I will say no more than that. No spoilers coming up here. So, James, you have brought along a number of objects that influenced your writing in some way. Now, the first of these relates to that eerie opening extract from The Damage Done. Tell us about this photograph you've got here of a very creepy-looking lodge. Well, it's a photograph... Um, well, it's one of a series of photographs I stumbled across on the internet when I was supposed to be writing and finding ways of avoiding writing. And it shows a lodge, an old hunting lodge, somewhere in the Perthshire Highlands that's just been abandoned. Mm. And you know, it looks literally like the family got up and walked out 50 years ago. And they left the furniture, they left the books on the bookshelves, they left everything behind, and even like the plates on the dining table with food and, and you know, the knives and forks still on the plates, as it were and the roof has slowly given way and the rain's got in and yeah. the, the, the bookshelves have collapsed and the books are rotting away and there's dead animals on the floor that have got in but can't get back out again. I just looked at these pictures and thought, you know, what is the story behind this place? You know, who owns it? Why did they abandon it? And, yeah. and my writer's brain just goes on and on and asking questions and asking questions about... And there's loads of these these old mansions, and usually it's fairly banal. There was one one last member of a family living in it, and mm. they died, or they fell ill and were taken into hospital and then died in hospital, but they were taken away from the house and it was closed up. They're, they're so creepy and, yeah. and, and, and atmospheric, and I, I'd, I'd already got the idea for those two characters who we hear about, and they were going to be kind of pivotal to the whole story. But I was asking myself where they'd come from, and that's when I stumbled across these pictures, and I thought, yeah... What if there was actually some kind of you know, people? Are they people or are they malign spirits or what are they yeah. that, that just appear in this place mm. when they're needed and you know, they're called from this place of dereliction and they go off to the city to sort something out and then they come back again at the end? And it just struck me as really nicely creepy and spooky, which is the kind of story that I write. Yeah, and so is that what often happens? You just get a seed like that and you've thought of these two people... And there's the house, and then everything sort of just starts growing from there as you invent more and more Com story complete, around it. Completely, yes. I mean, the original spark for that entire story mm. was when I was doing the publicity for the previous book, Prayer for the Dead, and I'd done a book signing in Waterstones in Perth, which is my, my nearest town, mm. and I was driving home, and as you come out of Perth, there's a short bit of motorway before you turn off the motorway to go into Darkest Fife, where I live. And um, just as I was coming onto the motorway, there was a woman standing, thumbing for a lift. And I sort of hitchhiker, you didn't think much about it. And I just kind of noticed as I was driving past, because I didn't stop and I didn't pick her up. Because, yeah. because my mother always told me not to <laughs> pick up hitchhikers or indeed hitchhike myself. But she take was very, note, listeners. Take <laughs> note, listeners, yes. But she was very well dressed. She was very properly dressed and a bit, oh, probably sort of late 30s, early 40s, she had a kind of a tweed skirt suit on and, and she had a, a heavy leather 
Gladstone bag. And, and, and I just, as I was driving sort of down the road and just thinking, what is her story? Mm. And, and, and that's, what's in the bag? And what, and yes, where and did, you, yeah, where exactly. did you come from? Where are and, you going? And that's what we do as writers. We, we notice the weirdest of details and they stick in our heads and we worry away at them until this tiny little idea becomes a novel. Well, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but the paranormal elements in your books, so... Well, that was one of the reasons why I found it very difficult to get published in the first place. Right. I, I wrote the first book in the series, Natural Causes, in sort of 2005, 2006. Mm. And it was shortlisted for the Crime Writers Association debut dagger, which is a very prestigious yeah. award for unpublished authors. And on the back of that, lots of publishers asked to see the manuscript. It's one of the great things about the debut dagger is it gets you noticed. And that I got hundreds of what they call rave rejections. Lots of editors writing back and actually giving me feedback because it's very unusual as a debut author sending off your manuscript to get any feedback other than no thanks. Yeah. And they were saying, you know, we love your writing, we love the characters and everything, but there's just no market for crime fiction with a supernatural um, don't element to it. Don't know if you don't it. try. <laughs> well, exactly. But that was the thing that I kept on getting knocked back because of the supernatural element. But that was, the, that was, you know, that was my kind of unique selling point as yes. well. I didn't just want to write another... Police and that's procedural. sort of where you came from in the first place. That yes, was your comics. background. Yeah. Um, Tony McLean as a character, he started off as a character in a comic script that I wrote in the early 1990s, which was a ghost story. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's meet Detective Inspector Tony McLean now in another extract from the audiobook of The Damage Done. Dawn's early light was pinking the cloudy sky as McLean pushed open the back door and walked through into his kitchen. The familiar smells comforted him, the warmth from the agar a welcoming embrace after the chill outside. Mrs McCutcheon's cat stared up from her usual spot in the middle of the big wooden table, her head bobbing up and down a couple of times as she tasted the air, decided he wasn't an intruder worth bothering about. Morning to you too. He dumped his case down on a chair, heaved open the stove top and put the kettle on to boil. It was a reflex action, the thing you did as soon as you got in from a long shift, but no sooner had he started fishing around for mug, tea bag and the ever-optimistic biscuit than McLean realised just how tired he was. It had taken most of the night to process all the people in the Newtown brothel, and with each new identity confirmed, so the mood in the SCU had darkened. They'd been acting on good information, raided what had all the hallmarks of a brothel, Found a house with a dozen bedrooms, all occupied by men and women engaged in sexual acts of varying degrees of perversion. And yet none of the women present were sex workers, not by any stretch definition. There was no evidence any had taken payment, and they all appeared to be gainfully employed in more traditional walks of life. If it hadn't been for John Smith, they'd have been screwed. McLean smiled at the bad joke poured boiling water onto the tea bag and stared out the window at the garden beginning to extract itself from the darkness. Even with Mr Smith they were on dodgy ground, although it was unlikely anyone would complain too loudly that their swingers party had been disrupted. He didn't much fancy the job of breaking the news to the deputy chief constable though. A lot of man-hours had gone into the operation, a lot of overtime, a lot of expense, all for nothing. No wonder Joe Dexter was back on the cigarettes. Clasping a mug of tea as much for the warmth as anything, he headed out of the kitchen, across the hallway to the front door. He scooped up a pile of mail, the fruits of at least two days' delivery if the weight of them meant anything. Moving back to the SCU had been a mixed blessing. 
It got him out of the way of the newly promoted Detective Superintendent Brooks and Detective Chief Inspector Spence, marking the new territory like badly trained spaniels. But it also meant working odd shifts and further disrupting his already meagre sleep patterns. McLean couldn't remember a time when he hadn't felt weary, put upon and generally fed up. He's a very, very unique character. Is he based on sort of elements of people you know or even a bit on yourself? I think he's he's inevitably... There's a little of me in all of my mm. characters. There's probably rather more of me in Tony McLean than I would care to admit. Um, <laughs> one of the things I used to do when I was starting writing him, you know, people that I know quite well, like yeah. so my younger brother, I'd think, well, what would he do in this situation? And that becomes one right. of Tony McLean's traits. Tra yeah, uh, and, but the more you write him, the more that kind of becomes automatic yeah. uh, because you, you get to know him as a character. Um, so you know what he'll do mm. and it's it's very telling I, I find if I'm writing one of these novels and, and I'm for the purposes of plot to make him do something that he wouldn't do the the whole structure of the story very quickly unravels usually if I if I find myself stuck and I can't work out why the story's not working I'll it's because you go, haven't stayed true yeah, I'll to I'll go him. back a couple of, of, of chapters and realise that actually no in that situation Tony wouldn't do that make him do the right thing, and then suddenly the whole story comes back together again. Got you. OK. So uh, on now to your next object. Now, uh, unfortunately, this one wouldn't fit into our studio here. So you've brought a picture along instead. Tell us what your next object is. Well, this is my lovely Class Arian 410 tractor. Yes, um, parking uh, restrictions yeah. outside the Penguin Studios meant we just have to do with the photo. It has a, a maximum permitted road speed of 25 miles an hour, so it would have taken a very long time <laughs> for me to drive it down from Fife to here. It could have been an adventure. Uh, yeah, I, I, driving a tractor a through the middle of London would be an interesting experience. <laughs> I'm a livestock farmer as well as writing these. Throw um, that in there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's an unusual combination. a livestock farmer, do you mean... Is this a hobby thing on the side no, or is this a business? No, this is a business. Elaborate. Um, um, I run a 350-acre farm wow. in North East Fife, which I inherited from my father when he, he died about eight years ago. Right. And um, I took it on. Uh, I have two brothers and a sister, but none of them wanted to take it on. Did you uh, want to take I it on? I wanted to. and oh, I, I, uh, When he died, rather tragically, in a car accident... Oh. Um, I was living in Wales and working as an agricultural consultant, so it made sense for me to come back. Yeah. But the thing about livestock farmers, particularly it's a hill farm, so it's not the best land in the world, is that you don't normally buy new kit. It's all second-hand stuff. Right. And, and the hill farmers tend to have the really knackered old tractors. And I did have, I had a, a wonderful old Renault tractor that used to leak oil all the way up and down the road, and its, it's hydraulics didn't work terribly well, and it was a bit of a bone shaker and really noisy and smelly. And then Penguin came along and made me an offer for the first three Tony McLean books, along with a large cheque. And you thought, I'll oh, see thought, if Alpha do tractors. <laughs> Unfortunately, Alpha don't do tractors. <laughs> ah. Lamborghini used to. Lamborghini started off as a tractor manufacturer, but uh, they don't make tractors anymore, so I couldn't get a Lamborghini tractor. Oh. Um, so I looked at the finances of it and I thought, I'm going to buy myself a new tractor. And it's been used for an awful lot of publicity, so it's kind of earning its keep. This is a famous <laughs> tractor that you have now. I was on the front cover of Tractor Times, oh. posing in front of my tractor with a copy of my book. So you're so now I, a cover star as exactly. well. Exactly. That, that was the crowning moment of my career, really. <laughs> I hope you framed it, put it up in your... Are you in a farmhouse or are you in a mansion like I, Tony? I, no, I, I don't know what... I, I'm in a farm... Well, th th there's the funny thing, though. When I inherited the farm and, and we... Obviously, I, I'd say I've got two brothers and a sister and, and everything was split four ways. Mm. So I had to buy them out as best I could. Right. Um, and the only way I could afford to do that was if 
one of them moved into the farmhouse. And my younger brother, Duncan, wanted to anyway. He lived in the area and he, he moved into the farmhouse. But that meant that I didn't have a house. So I, I moved into a static caravan on the farm about six years ago and lived in it happily for five years whilst in the process building a house to live in. Right, uh, OK. And that was going really well. The house is not quite very finished. Very grand designs. It is quite grand <laughs> designs, it's, uh, which was a mistake because, you know, various things had gone wrong with the building. Well, that's they always do. But, it's four months yeah. later and the <laughs> yes. roof still isn't yeah. on. Mostly problems with glazing. Um, oh, we've got right, big, yeah. one big feature window which looks out across the most stunning view you have ever seen, which is why I wanted to build a house there anyway. But we had so much problems with that, that window. It delayed the build by at least a year and added considerably to the cost. Mm. Uh, but we weren't quite ready to move in. It's still not finished, but we have moved in. But back in February, the caravan was parked in a Dutch barn, which is a barn which is open on three sides. Right. And the windward side okay. has just got a slatted wall on it. And I'd parked the caravan in this Dutch barn just to give it a bit of shelter. Yeah. And Storm Gertrude came through in February and blew the barn down oh, on no. top of the caravan <laughs> oh, no. whilst me and my partner Barbara were in it, which was a little alarming. Um, <laughs> everyone was fine. It was, it was scary, but, um, but no one was hurt. But we had to vacate the caravan very quickly That's and good. move into the unfinished house. So is the house finished now? Not quite. It's, I mean, it's habitable. It's got uh, electricity and water and heating and um, most of the doors that it needs. A couple more Tony McLean books and that'll... Well, keep, probably keep even going. one or... <laughs> probably now, actually. We don't know. The sales are happening yeah. as we speak. Oh, gosh, so I'll look forward to reading about something similar happening in a book in the future. Well, funnily very... enough, in, in um, saying that I had problems with the builders, in Prayer for the Dead... Mm. There's a pair of property developers who come to a horrible, gruesome, sticky end. And that's basically my way of dealing with all the builders who have screwed me over or annoyed me on this build. You should be very careful about crossing a writer, particularly right. a crime writer, because they will put you in a book and kill you. Yeah, if a future book has an interview where someone gets <laughs> skewered to death or something, I'll know that I... You're doing all right so bad. far. Phew. OK, OK. Right, so you have to farm and you have to write... And both, obviously, are full-time jobs that people often only need to concentrate on one of. How do you do this together? I, I don't watch any television. That's really? the basic thing. I, I don't have time. I, I There's farm... all these great crime thrillers I know, on. and I wish I had time to watch things. I find that I write best at night, sort of between about eight and midnight. I would probably write till one or two in the morning, except that I have to get up. So I farm during the day and I have Highland cows, mm. um, so the big shaggy things with the horns, and New Zealand Romney sheep. And the reason I have both of those is because they're quite hands-off. They're, 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 oh, yeah, they're hardy animals that live outdoors all year round. And I chose them deliberately, even when I was setting up the farm, which was before any of the books, to give me time to write because yeah. I've always done jobs which have given me time to write because I've always wanted to write and I love writing. Yeah. So I, no, I do the yeah. same thing in my garden. Plants yeah. that don't need yeah. anything done to them. Can you multitask in any way or can the two fuse together to be more time efficient? Well, it's difficult to write when you're doing, you know, you're, you're handling animals or whatever. But on the other hand, a lot of the jobs on the farm are fairly mindless. If you're topping the weeds in a field, so you're in the tractor, you're going up and down with a big mower on the back, your mind can wander. And I also listen to audiobooks a lot in the tractor. You know, I, I can just let my mind wander. Do you listen to your own audiobooks ever? Only snippets, because by the time 
it gets to having come out as an audio book. I've read it at least half a dozen, if not a dozen times. Yeah, on the next one, or the next one after that. Right. And and the other problem I find because Ian Hanmore does them so well. He does. Because I when I'm doing publicity, go to libraries or whatever, and I always read a bit from one of my books, and I can't do it as well as him. (laughs) So I picked out a great passage. And then I heard Ian Hanmore reading it. And I had to stop because I just couldn't do it Aww. as well as him. So, yeah, I don't listen to them. I do listen to audiobooks a lot, mm, but not my but own. But not your own. Well, you're going to listen to a bit of your own now because we're going to hear another piece from The Damage Done, read by the brilliant Ian Hanmore. Headland House, he asked when he was sure Spencer was gone. That was the upmarket knocking shop that got raided in the early 90s, right? Grumpy Bob held up the folder. The same. You know it. One of my first ops. I was still in uniform then. Thought the case was closed. Oh, the raid was. But that was only ever half of the story. It was that wee lass who was found there. Never got to the bottom of who'd taken her there. Reading through this, it looks like no one really tried. McLean was about to say something. A memory long forgotten coming to the surface but the shrill electronic bell of his mobile distracted him. Peering at the screen showed that DCI Dexter was trying to get a hold of him. Fair enough. There was still the less-than-successful brothel raid that needed explaining to the powers that be, and they could only put it off for so long. Do us a favour, Bob. Get me a copy of that file, could you? Only don't tell anyone I asked for it, OK? No problem. I'll get Sandy Gregg to bring it over. She's shuttling back and forth between CID and Vice almost as much as you. Grumpy Bob closed up the folder. Any particular reason why you're interested in it? McLean paused before answering. Partly, it was just his natural curiosity getting the better of him. But he couldn't deny the similarities between Headland House and the new town terrace they had just recently raided. Except for all the excesses he'd witnessed that night, there had been no children involved, and there had been no doubt Headland House was being used as a brothel. Nostalgia, maybe. He shook his head, knowing it was a lie. And that wee girl you mentioned. I was the one who found her. Christ, I've not thought about it in years. Always wondered what had happened to her. An extract from the audiobook The Damage Done. So, James, you described the police procedures in lots of detail in the Inspector McLean series. What sort of research do you actually do before starting to write a book? Very little. And before starting the book, I won't do really any research at Mm. all. My technique for writing, which I've developed over the years, is really just a very, very rough outline, an idea of the themes that I want to explore in the book and an opening scene. And I write that opening scene, which is usually you know, the main crime happening, the first person being murdered or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I will basically throw my detectives at it and see what happens and just follow them. I, I write my first drafts basically as like if I'm sitting... Like a real police station. <laughs> exactly, as if I'm sitting on Tony McLean's shoulder and following him around yeah. for however many days or weeks or months the, the story takes. But my, my, my keystone is, is it plausible? Funnily enough, that one of the first emails I got after Natural Causes first came Mm. out 
This email pinged into my inbox, and it started, Dear Mr Oswald, I am a recently retired detective inspector from Lothian and Borders Police, which is Lothian and Borders being the Edinburgh yeah. region then that, that Tony McLean worked in. And my heart sank. I thought, Uh-oh. <laughs> and then the next line went, I've just finished reading Natural Causes. I really enjoyed it, but I'd love to know who your source is, because I'm fairly sure I know who Detective Superintendent Duguid is based on. And I had to email him back and said, I just made him up. He's, I, I don't have a source at Lothian Borders Police. He's just every incompetent manager I've what ever worked under. What a brilliant letter to get, though. That is so... And it was, it was, it was yeah. brilliant, because he didn't care whether I was getting the procedure for initiating a search for a missing child right, uh, because the actual procedure is pretty dull. For me, it's always character first, and, mm. the, and the, the plot comes out of the character interactions and whatever horrible situation I've invented for them to, to experience. Are all the horrible situations totally invented, or do you ever take inspiration from true-life crimes? I, not so much true life crimes. I take a lot of inspiration from geography, so from true life places. Right. I lived in Roslyn, just outside Edinburgh, just to the south of Edinburgh for five years, near Roslyn Chapel, as made famous by the Da Vinci Code, and um, mm. and Roslyn Glen. And just across from Roslyn Glen is uh, is Roslyn Lee Hospital, um, which is a mental institute. And I used all those as settings in books. And I I use little snippets of sort of family history and things that I've learnt down the years to colour the stories. But I don't think I've ever consciously read about a crime and, and thought yeah. that would be really good in a book because I think that's, you know, sometimes you worry that people are going to obviously see that, you know, you're fictionalising a real-life crime and that's a bit insensitive to yes, the victims absolutely. and the family of the victims or whatever. So on to your next object now, and this is something that's at the heart of the damage done, isn't it? You've brought a book in. A book, yes. Well, this particular book, The Hellfire Clubs, Sex, Satanism and Secret Societies by Evelyn Lord, this is about as much research as I ever do. It's, <laughs> it's more my prurient interest than anything else. The Hellfire Clubs and, and the, the Scottish equivalent of the Hellfire Club, Beggars Benison, which is a fascinating secret society, mm. and they, they were just a bunch of sort of well-to-do sort of rich merchants and aristocrats and young men with too much money and they used to meet every so often and indulge in sex and sexual parties and all sorts of weird mm. things and drink and pretend to worship the devil because it just upset the church and yeah. and all sorts of stuff and there's another book which I didn't bring because it's in a box somewhere, which is Bajant and Lee's um, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, which is the story which inspired Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, uh, which is this idea that Jesus Christ had a child and the child was brought to England and, yeah, and, and, and the, the bloodline continues. Blood continues. And I just love those sort of conspiracy theories. They're completely bonkers. <laughs> you don't, don't, do you I, believe in them? No, I don't believe in them at all, but I just find the effort that people go into detecting these patterns and things... Yes. Absolutely fascinating. And one of the themes in The Damage Done that I was kind of touching on was the idea that rather than there actually being secret societies and, and, and organisations and shadowy people manipulating things in the background, it's actually just something which emerges from the complexity of people... Yeah, six degrees of separation. Yeah, people having... You know, you have all these these people in a, having you know a, a swingers party and they're all lawyers and, 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 and you know, professional people. And... They all know each other and they've all got this slightly guilty secret. So if something goes wrong for one of them, they can tap the other one for a favour. And it's just this network just grows and grows and yeah, grows. And it's linked. not it's not actually 
you know, some people would look at that and see a conspiracy and say, you know, there's a, the old boy network and everything and it's all being manipulated and levers are being pulled. Whereas I look at it the other way. Yeah, I just so think it's, it's causation and effect. Yeah, and you've, I, I, yeah. I think it's just emergent from the complexity. And I just took that one step further, which was if you've got this almost sentient network of favours and everything, then if that's threatened in some major way, it's got its own built-in mechanism yeah, for, to, protect to, to protect itself. It. And mm. that's where the twins come in, those yeah. two people that we met in the first yeah. scene, just waking up in this strange house. So something has happened to upset the balance, which is why they're needed in the city. They need to redress yeah. it. OK, well, let's hear again from the audiobook of The Damage Done. In this extract, the journalist Jo Dalgleish tells Tony McLean about her theory on secret societies. Dalgleish made a noise that might have been annoyance or might have been her signalling to the catering trolley that she needed tea. You ever heard of the beggar's benison? she asked eventually. The secret society? Bunch of aristocrats and wealthy merchants playing at being debauched and evil, mostly in Anstruther of all places. Drinking and whoring was their thing, I think. They started off in the mid-1700s and petered out at the start of the Victorian era when prudery became more fashionable. See, that's what I like about you, Tony. Any other copper wouldn't have had a clue, but you're a font of useless knowledge. Is that meant to be a compliment? Take it how you want to. Thing is, there were lots of those societies around back then. Hellfire clubs all over the place. That's what happens when you have a wealthy elite with too much money and time on their hands. Is this going anywhere, Dalgleish? Only I have an important meeting I don't want to miss. Christ, someone got up on the wrong side of bed this morning. Dalgleish coughed long and loud and bubbly. And you're not the one who's not had a fag since Edinburgh. OK, OK, beggars, benison, hellfire clubs, secret societies in the 18th century. What of them? Well, like you said, they kind of went out of fashion when the Victorians invented prudery. But what if they never went away, eh? What if they just went underground? got good at keeping themselves hidden, protecting themselves. A couple of hundred years is a long time to develop a sophisticated network, wouldn't you say? I love the character of Joe Dalgleish, I have to say, and I love the way you say about her leathery coat, which just emerges into her leathery skin. Talking of which, you've actually worn your next uh, object into the studio, haven't you? It's not a coat, but... No, a pair of walking boots, is that the one? Ah, that's the one. Yeah. The great thing about being a farmer and a writer is that when one's not going well, I can go and do the other. And if I'm stuck on a plot point or I'm writing away and I just can't get the voice right, I can just pull on my stout walking boots, get the dogs and just go for a walk over the farm. Trudge out in the mud. Trudge out in the mud, over the back of the hill, go and have a look at the cows that are over the back maybe or, or whatever... And I used to find that even before I took over the farm, when I was working in Wales, and I lived in mid-Wales, just outside Aberystwyth, in the Welsh mountains, Cambrian mountains, and there was just mile after mile after mile of forestry tracks and trees and mountains, mm. and just walk. And I used to find, very much like Tony McLean, the rhythm of my feet on the ground would just settle my brain down and start the ideas ticking over. And I'd realised, you know, I'd maybe walked 10 or 15 miles but the story was sorted in my head. Oh, nice. Uh, you need the space, 
and you need a good stout pair of walking boots. So the setting of Edinburgh for the Inspector McLean series, would you describe yourself as a country boy or a city boy? I'm very definitely a country boy, born just outside Bishop Stortford Mm. and raised in rural North Essex, sent away to school and then went up to university in Aberdeen around about the same time as my parents took on the farm in Fife. Right. Because you, I mean, you do map out the city and its individual streets and it's a great setting for a crime thriller. Do you visit Edinburgh then when you're writing or do you just know it very well? Well, I, I do know it very well. As I say, I lived in Roslyn for five years, just south of the city. And I, whilst there, my partner was doing a PhD at the vet school um, right. just outside Edinburgh. And to keep body and soul together, I got a series of temp jobs while she was doing that. So right. I worked in call centres... I worked for Standard Life Bank. I worked all over Edinburgh, which is how I know the city quite well. And mm-hmm. then for a while I worked as a delivery driver for Oddbins. You've which done it all. Great, great job. I, well, I've done it all. I haven't done anything seriously, really. Great job. Did but, you get a few free bottles on the side? Yeah, well, the great thing about Oddbins was that you got a staff discount on wine and beer. Yeah. So I always used to joke they didn't pay you in money, they paid you in, in, in booze. <laughs> right. um, and I also, because I was driving the delivery van, we used to deliver all over the northeast of Scotland. And it just gives you a really good sense of place and constantly looking at maps. I love maps So you know well. your geographical locations. You know your wine, you know your livestock. (laughs) Is there no end to this man's talents? (laughs) Well, it's all great for the books as well. I'm a font of useless information. But that's the thing. It's just little details that you can just drop Mm, into a story that just colour it, which I guess... You know, it's it's an accumulation of knowledge over the years, which I think if I was trying to write these books in my 20s, they would be a lot more focused on perhaps the stuff that I had just learnt to write that book. Right. rather than now writing a book and just pulling in all my experiences. Right, well, shall we hear one final clip from the audiobook of The Damage Done? In this extract, Tony McLean returns to Headland House. Headland House was still there, but it looked like it had been converted into apartments. McLean parked across the street, listening to the tick-tick of cooling metal as his car fell silent. He really shouldn't have been here. There were far more important things to worry about. But he couldn't help thinking about the place, the raid that should have been the talk of the city but which fizzled away with barely a mention in the press, the unnamed little girl he'd found locked up in a cage in the attic. What had happened to her? She'd be, what, thirty now? Older? Christ, where do the years go? He shook his head, even though there was no one about to see. The folder Grumpy Bob had given him lay on the passenger seat, but he didn't pick it up to read it immediately, just sat there staring at the old building as the trees swayed in the breeze coming in off the fourth. So much going on, at work and at home. Sometimes he envied Emma. How easy it would have been to have just headed off into the wild with her, travelled the world. He had no real ties to Edinburgh any more, just a job he was more compelled to do than actually enjoyed. A social life that revolved around takeaway food and Mrs McCutcheon's cat. Not much to show for twenty years and more of service. With a sigh, he took up the folder, flicked it open and scanned the pages. It was sparse, mostly photocopies of heavily redacted notebooks, a couple of witness statements. There was no mention of the girl beyond that she had been found and delivered to social services for rehousing. 
There were no arrest forms, no details of preparation for court. There wasn't even any record of what had been sent to the procurator fiscal, let alone the outcome of any trial. McLean cast his mind back, trying to remember anything of the case at all beyond the raid and finding the young girl. He'd been selected for the fast track not long afterwards, sent up to Aberdeen and then over to Strathclyde to try and cram two years of beat work into six months. Then they'd made him a detective. At the time, he'd assumed it was a reward for his diligence. Now it didn't seem quite so innocent. What better way to get the awkward young constable out of the picture than swamp him with so much work he never had time to ask any questions? Ah, so there we have it, the final clip. And it's time also for your final object. So this is your notebook, I believe. One of many, yes. This notebook is handmade for me by a good friend of mine, Sue Charman Anderson. And I'm not a brilliant note-taker. As you see, if I open it, most of the pages are blank because it's too beautiful a notebook to actually write in. But I do take lots of notes because inspiration comes to you in the weirdest of places, you know, from bitter experience that if you don't write it down there and then you forget it. I, I find myself just thinking, oh, what was that great idea that oh, I had yesterday? I, I should have written that down. So I have, I have hundreds of notebooks. The thing is, though, I will write it, diligently write something down in a notebook or on a scrap of paper or whatever and probably never read it again. But just the act of writing it down is enough to cement it in my mind so that I don't forget it. And the other thing I'll do is mind mapping. Yeah. I've got a big whiteboard by my desk, which is always... Full of scrib- spider diagrams. Sp- spider diagrams and stuff <laughs> and, and scribbles. And it's all very in the moment. And I don't normally refer back to them. Then sometimes I pick up a notebook because I'm mm. going away and I need something to scribble in and I, I start leafing through it. Like That's got a few notes, I think. Am I allowed and, to look yeah, inside? Yeah, absolutely. You probably won't be able to read my handwriting. Your writing is very neat, I have to say. Yeah, it has to be in that notebook because it's got no lines. So and also because this book is so beautiful. It's a it lovely is, sort of chunky, hand-bound, leatherish. It is. We mentioned a little bit earlier that the seventh book in the Inspector McLean series, Written in Bones, is coming out in February. Can you give us a sneak preview of what we can expect? Well, more of the same, really. Tony McLean going up against authority, doing what he's told not to do. And it opens with quite a sort of, I suppose, an unusual scene. They discover a body in the topmost branches of a tree on the meadows in the middle of Edinburgh. I'd gone down to Edinburgh and I was wandering around and looking for inspiration and I just suddenly had this image. I was looking up at these trees in the meadows and sort of just saw a body yeah. sprawled in the topmost branches, which is completely weird. Yeah, not and a I, way I'd want to and go. <laughs> no, and, 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 and I just kind of thought, well, why would there be a person up there? Yeah. How did they get there? All these questions started sparking off. And that's um, the thing, which is what happens yeah. when you read the first chapter immediately, yeah. is all these questions. Wow, on that note, we don't want to give too many spoilers where I've read it, but uh, yes, that one is out in February. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your objects with us. And just quickly, can I ask you, do you have more Inspector McLean adventures planned out in notebooks or in your head or anywhere? I have in my bag that I brought in with me a spiral-bound notebook. And actually, there are a few notes in the back of that. um, So actually, in this room I'm in, the future of Tony. Tony McLean, book eight, which I'm going to start writing next week. Right. Um, And I, I know what it's about... 
but what I don't know yet is what it's going to be called. I find titles really, really hard. It will come I've, to you. I've got a long journey home later on today, so I, I can just... Not as get... long as if you'd bought the tractor. No, the no, not. but I'm flying back to Edinburgh and I can have my notebook out and I can scribble out ideas. And mm. I think not bones... Probably not dead. We've had enough deads. Okay. Well, watch this space. And if you have any suggestions, listeners, feel free. Please write in. Yes, you can tweet them in. You can follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books and join us on Facebook to see pictures of all the objects that we've chatted about today and to see who else will be joining us in the Penguin studio soon. But right now, huge thank you and goodbye to James Oswald. Thank you. Brian Cox stars as the Edinburgh detective in the BBC Radio 4 series Inspector McLeavy. Inspired by the real-life memoirs of a Victorian inspector in Scotland, James McLeavy prowls the dark streets of 1860s Edinburgh, bringing criminals to justice, with the assistance of Constable Mulholland. I am James McLeavy, inspector of police. My parish is lit in the city of Edinburgh and life is very dull. When is crime going to start pushing up the chutes? And where is murder when you need it most? Well, Constable, a fine day. Indeed it is, sir. I played a game uh, Saturday past. The golf course was a picture. How did you fare? Putting let me down. Some things never change. How are your bees? Wasn't fit to burst. (laughs) McCleavy! What's the matter with you, man? I just hit my toe on Valentine's death. Sorry, sir. Have you moved it? It's always been there, Inspector. Uh, the spirit of springtime. Like an old bear out the cave. Ah, see, you near managed to clean your coat. Pigeon excretia. Hard to shift. Good. But just to cheer the day, McLeavy, your friend Jean Brash is safe from eviction. Why? The council meeting. Chief Constable Craddock's attempt to have the just land closed by civic authority as a house of ill repute. Defeated by majority decision. Mm, That'll put his nose out of joint. That's a busy enough proboscis. Now, Constable, Murray Craddock is our appointed superior and must be accorded the same dutiful respect such as you and McLeavy deliver unto me. Lieutenant, I'm not at the front desk for you. Bring it over. Usually you that gets the notes, Inspector. Sweet smelling. Fragrant <laughs> as the rose. Here you are. Here you are, sir. Aye, right, Lieutenant. Go away, Ballantyne. Sorry. How that boy. <laughs> From Winifred Dunwoody for... Well, that, that's Alistair Dunwoody's wife. The council fellow. Ah, deputy chief, no less. Lieutenant Roach, I wonder if I might impose upon you to pay a visit at the above address. There has been a fatality in the house. Fatality? In fact, to be precise, murder. Murder? Well, that's more like the thing. Series 1 to 12, available now on Amazon, iTunes and Audible.